You are listening to an Pavilion podcast. I think we're going to get started. I'm Charlotte Day, the director at Monash University Museum of Art, and really pleased to um, welcome you this afternoon to a beautiful afternoon of listening and thinking. Um, this is our final Boiler Room event for the year, a special lecture by South African-born artist, curator and educator Gabby Neobi. I can't do that. <laughs> Apologies for that. Titled Working with the Unknown. Before we commence, I would li first like to acknowledge the Yuluk Utwilam as the traditional custodians on the land upon which we meet at M Pavilion this afternoon. The Yulukutwilam means people of the river camp and is connected with the coastal land at the head of Port Phillip Bay, extending from Werribee River to Mordialik. The Yuluk at William are part of the Bunurung, one of the five major groups of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to the land and waters, their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. I'd also like to welcome all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Gabby, who's been in Melbourne as a keynote speaker at the Triple ANZ Conference Aesthetics, Politics, Histories, the Social Context of Art, held at RMIT this week and I can see there's a few people here that are still a bit recovering from that experience, been a big week. Um, Gabby's visit to Australia has been supported by RMIT University School of Art, by AAANZ and Monash University and we're also very grateful to M Pavilion for hosting us this afternoon. I'd like to thank Gabby for making uh, time in her busy schedule to visit us and for her generosity, energy and enthusiasm. She's had a few things to do this week. Also to, um, to thank Mama's Kate Barber who's worked on making this program with Gabby possible. Gabby made international headlines this year leading the first all black curatorial team for the recent 10th Berlin Biennale, We Don't Need Another Hero, and for speaking about the importance of revisiting history in our art institutions. Since the early 2000s, she has been engaged in collaborative artistic, curatorial and educational projects in South Africa and internationally. She is founding member of the Johannesburg-based collaborative platform NGO, Nothing Gets Organised, and a centre for historical reenactments. NGO focuses on processes of self-organisation that take place outside of predetermined structures, definitions, contexts and forms. And the Centre for Historical Reenactments whoops, responded to the demands excuse me, of the moment through an exploration of how historical legacies impact and resonate within contemporary art. Recently, Gabby co-curated the 32nd Sao Paulo Biennial, A Live Uncertainty, and in 2016 also co-curated A Labour of Love at World Culture and Museum Frankfurt, which travelled to the Johannesburg Art Gallery in 2017. Since 2011, Gab Gabby has been teaching in Johannesburg, South Africa, where she lives, and her writings have been published in various catalogues, books and journals. Her Boiler Room lecture prefaces Mama's upcoming exhibition, Shapes of Knowledge, curated by Mama's senior curator, Hannah Matthews, which will open in February next year, and brings together eight projects from across the globe to reflect on the different platforms, spaces and timeframes in which knowledge is produced and shared. In this afternoon's talk, Gabby will speak about her collaborative curatorial practice, 
starting from the founding of the Collaborative Platform Centre for Historical Reenactments to co-establishing Nothing Gets Organised. Both projects traverse her artistic and educational approaches and detail her interest in knowledge, how it's produced and revisited. Thank you so much, Gabby. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you. Thank you for that generous um, introduction and thanks everyone who's here this afternoon uh, in this amazing venue. Um, I have prepared a um, slide presentation. This is my third slide presentation in, uh, in Melbourne and I try to change it as much as possible more for myself um, than anything else. So I submitted this title, Working with the Unknown. Um, and then now I have an alternative kind of title, um, Angazi, but I'm sure. Um, and this is a, it's, it's something that South Africans say. Uh, when you ask a direction or when an event is starting, someone will say Angazi, but I'm sure, which means I don't know, but I'm sure. Um, and to say I don't know, but I'm sure, may seem strange and contradictory, but it is within these contradictions that we can allow for a space for the speculative um, or for imagination to be free. Um, when I was very, very young, in 1997, when the Johannesburg Biennale uh, took place for the second and last time uh, in Johannesburg, we traveled with my university to from Durban to Johannesburg to find that the Johannesburg Biennale had been prematurely closed. Um, so it's one of these events that I did not see and, uh, and one that is ingrained in a lot of people's minds and experiences, especially a particular generation who were uh, in Johannesburg in 1997 that I tend to meet in many parts of the world. And, uh, and they always, um, ask me about the Johannesburg or the Biennale itself. So it's one event that I kind of have worked with its memory without having experienced. Now defunct, the Johannesburg Biennale, which lies like a cloud or is a phantom pain in the country's art scene, became witness to the city's special challenges in their early stages immediately after the official end of apartheid. Held for the first time in 1995, the Biennale was set as South Africa's re-entry into the international discourse, discourses of contemporary art. The, the, the discontinuity of the Johannesburg Biennale held um, uh, 95 and 97 re respectively, generated a social memory and an unofficial archive from which we as CHR, Center for Historical Reenactments, foregrounded ways of considering what the Biennale represented both in South Africa and internationally, and where its memory resides presently. I show here um, a window um, of uh, our space that we occupied as Center for Historical Reenactments. Um, I told the story briefly yesterday that when uh, shortly after founding of the Center for Historical Reenactments, I went to New York to attend a conference 
um, which was titled The Now Museum. And somebody in the audience asked me about the walls in the space which were painted black for a project at the time, um, assuming or, uh, that they were painted black because they were, we are against the white cube. Um, and from that moment on, in order to kind of um, um, find our own problems, other than um, being consumed in talking about the white cube, which discourses we know very well, um, we started focusing uh, on the window of the space, which was a four-meter uh, long window. And, 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 and for us, this became the space of, of CHR. Uh, more than the walls themselves. So although more than two decades have passed from the last uh, Johannesburg Biennale, the agency of many of the issues addressed through the initial conceptual framework of its, fr uh, um, of its framing remain as urgent. Whilst the post-liberation euphoria has diminished, the Biennale remained a platform which presented us an opportunity to look at the debris of its legacies and to investigate how its historical framework still resonates and examine the shift of priorities and their impact in the context of the local cultural scene. Among other things, CHR recalled the event as a way of revisiting a historical moment in which a number of pertinent questions and propositions were constructed. We foregrounded the Biennale as a way of reading the contemporary by complementing the past. By complementing the past, we extended beyond simply empathy with the past by necessitating willingness to questions that have changed over time, questions that are gaining new dimensions almost every day. Framing our platform as a reenactment was not a, um, a stage for playing out historical events as they occurred, but rather was a strategy uh, for returning to older questions to see if they activate new answers or open up to new questions that hopefully enable a different, uh, different futures to emerge. So it makes sense that our two-year-long process was titled Xenoglossia, a research project. Xenoglossia is a rare condition that is either di uh, disputed uh, or explained through another contested phenomena of reincarnation. Xenoglossia happens when someone speaks or writes in a language unknown to them. In this way, the project asked, what are the future resonances of variations of an unknown tongue? We explored how language has played a central role in some of the gravest historical misunderstandings that have been reincarnated in recent history. We considered events such as the 1976 Soweto student uprising, a historical protest against Africans as a language of instruction in school. We looked at the offensive words such as guere guere, a word which attempts to mimic a sound of an unrecognized language and one in which these misunderstandings can be located within the South African context. And here I refer uh, to the recurring xenophobic attacks towards Africans from outside of South Africa by South Africans. 
We went as far as considering Caliban's retort to Prospero in uh, uh, Prospero and Miranda in Shakespeare's *The Tempest* uh, from 1610, um, where um, Caliban says, "You taught me your language, and my profit on it is no is that I know how to curse," which is a slogan which uh, has become to come to be used as a tool for cultural resistance and described by Bill Ashcroft as an evocative model of the post-colonial subject. We compiled historical contemporary uh, examples and historical and contemporary examples in which linguistic proximity and distance has informed attitudes to concept of strangeness, sameness, difference, and otherness. I just want to say that this is a, a fast-forward account of, uh, of the project itself. So um, um, there's certain things that I spoke about in, in, an, in other platforms, and those who were lucky to be in all of them perhaps can, can, uh, um, can put the pieces together. Here I show uh, an image from a project that we uh, did. Um, I think this was our first coming out, so to speak, project, um, where we left the physical space of CHR and, walk and worked uh, on the places that we could see outside of the window. And one of them is this corner on Gerk and Nugget Street um, in a part of the city, in the east part of the city, which is uh, uh, known as Dornfontein, a post-industrial part of the city. Um, the English say that when you... Um, become too drunk, you start to see pink elephants. And I kind of like this idea of existing in the delirium um, of seeing pink elephants, perhaps uh, uh, as a way of seeing the future differently. Um, in South Africa, uh, during the height of, of apartheid, in fact, the apartheid government um, uh, made it unlawful for black people to brew their own alcohol. So alcohol as a whole, political thing where a lot of women used to kind of brew alcohol um, uh, underground in places that were called shibins. Um, I think it's an Irish term for uh, uh, an illegal drinking spot. So these shibins also were very much part of the cultural scene because a lot of musicians, Miriam Makeba, uh, uh, Hugh Masekela, started their careers in these spaces and um, a lot of writers would meet uh, in Shippeens as well. Uh, there's many f f footage or uh, even photographs of uh, writers like uh, Louis Ngozi, Ken Temba, um, meeting in, in these places. It's a, a history that was uh, activated by also a collective um, that is no longer around from Cape Town, from Kukuletu, which is a township in Cape Town. The collective was called Kukulective, and they basically operated their collective in a shipping in, in Kukuletu. Um, of course, the elephant is, uh, is also is a site of memory. We know that elephants remember, um, have better memories than, than we do. Um, so this pink elephant was left behind. Um, it used to be the building was squatted at the time when we we did this project. It was uh, it was a, a liquor store, obviously. So um, and 
and and but the elephant when the liquor store left um, along many other businesses in this part of the city and most part of the city um, the elephant was left as a witness so we kind of made the elephant uh, we declared it a, a memory or a memoriam um, and it kind of also allowed us to look into the cracks or the blind spots um, because South Africa is constructed as a grand narrative. Um, and I think we were more interested in kind of coming back and look at the, the blind spots of, of that grand, grand narratives. Um, it is a, a site uh, of trauma as well because in 2004, a very well-known musician from Mozambique was killed um, in this corner, and so became that uh, uh, site where people remembered where Jito Baloi uh, was killed. Um, and, um, and so Naguranza, which is the title of this project, was also the, the name of his album and a single that was the most um, well-known song from him. And it is a language, uh, Tonga, and it means I love you. So with Naguranza, we revisited a site of trauma, not by reproducing the pain, but rather by allowing the memory of the traumatic event to open up alternative strategies um, for constructing a more enabled vision for one's cultural inheritance or possible future. So one of the things we did is to paint the wall below the elephant pink and also commission a, uh, a mural or graffiti um, of the portrait of Tito Baloi. We also worked with the, another collective that worked in the city, Gelegeta Library. We asked them to, uh, to set up a, a screen printing uh, a t-shirt printing uh, uh, kind of workshop in front of um, a bus stop. There is in this area, there's a lot of buses that go to other parts of Southern Africa. So there's um, couches that, that, that go every day to, to Zambia, to Lusaka and Dola, which are cities in Zambia, also in uh, uh, as far as Congo and, and Malawi. And here where we were is the, is the bus stop for people going to, to, to Zambia, to, to Lusaka. So they come to Johannesburg to shop for, for building materials, even furniture and clothing and food. Um, and then throughout the day, they are packing the buses and at eight in the morning, the bus leaves. So it kind of situated our um, T-shirt screening workshop right there. And these are the t-shirts that were made. These t-shirts were then distributed in the morning in the bus. So they all left to, to, um, to Zambia um, to perhaps you know, activate something else. We do not know. Um, we kind of appropriated with this idea of the statement from a, a Danish um, a collective called Superflex, and they made uh, posters and mural 
uh, which read foreigners no what did it read foreigners please don't leave us alone with the with the tourists no i think there was a twist let me just go yeah it was in the superflex read foreigners please don't leave us alone with the danes and we we reappropriated it to the Johannesburg context that I spoke about, um, especially um, um, thinking about what the elephant itself had witnessed during the height of the xenophobic violence which erupted in 2008, um, which we are sure that this site was also affected by. Another project that I want to talk about is one that is called Fragile, uh, that we did at the Alf Kumalo Museum. Alf Kumalo, um, for more than five decades, he doc documented some of the country's most vital moments in history. In, so in July 2011, during our visit to the museum, my colleagues from CHR and I were shown around a room housing his most iconic images a dark room that was no longer in, in function, and a room with heaps of boxes, negatives, prints, personal notes, and outdated photographic equipment. We became curiously absorbed, the spirit and energy that seemed to hoover around what was trapped, hidden, and covered in dust in this one room seemed about to explode. So we came back the next year, and we um, had a 72-hour residency uh, in in uh, in March of 2012, um, which was self-initiated. So for three days, we searched for the unapparent, for everything. We cleaned, learned, listened to Kumalo's narratives, discussed sorted boxes, bags, images, documents, equipment, people, more people, some we knew, most we didn't, many dead, many survived, black people in agony, in love, at funerals, at rallies. I think to occupy a, a space like this at, where we had to take a, a position where we had to sleep at night was quite interesting because mostly the photographs that we experienced, we experienced standing uh, or looking at them um, from a book. But especially this image, when you're sleeping, it becomes even more um, uh, haunting, if I may say. And this is from, uh, taken from this 1976 during the student uh, uprising. So we also devised a, a system of, uh, of sorting the photographs. Um, and, and, uh, and, and they were very, it was a very basic system. For example, this box was a box of funerals. We also had a box of portraits. And when Alf Kumalo was not in the museum to tell us who the people in the photographs were, we then demarcated uh, those uh, uh, photographs into, into the portrait box. Um, and I remember one time he came in on a Saturday uh, late morning and, and kind of picked up a photograph from, from the box, which was this photograph of Onkhupute Tiro. Uh, uh, and he said, oh, Onkhupute Tiro, he was killed with a letter bomb in 1979. And then the image all of, all of a sudden changes and it has to be removed from the unknown, from the portrait into 
um, a different uh, demarcation. And this is the front and the back of the image. And this is his uh, old um, dark room, which we also sorted. And there you can see a photograph um, that was also taken in 76 with uh, uh, protest banners that say to hell with Africans. So as a response to, to this residency, uh, later on we created this banner in reference to a banner that is carried in a 1985 protest rally commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Sharpeville massacre on the 25th of which happened on the 21st of March, 1960. The black and white photograph hangs um, in the room with either iconic images in Kumalo's museum, seemingly unaware that the government had banned the demonstrations. The protesters were suddenly faced with police gunfire in which more than 20 people lost their lives. So to single out this reference was our attempt to reinstate the fact of history lived or destiny foretold. The statement, they will never kill us all, dramatizes continuity of polarization, they versus us. The banner, leaping out of historical moment, revives a discursive platform within which the current spaces of struggle might be critically examined through its many archives. I'm going to jump into another project, um, which we titled Xenoglossia, the Exhibition. This is a, a project that happened after CHR had, we had ended the project. We had uh, committed kind of institutional suicide in 2012 um, for various reasons that I went into detail about uh, yesterday. Um, but after the ending um, in 2012, we had what we call the haunting phase. Um, and so Xenoglossia and exhibition happened within the haunting phase um, of, of, of CHR, which was in, I think, 2013, around August. Xenoglossia, the exhibition, was not, however, a show and tell of the research process, but rather a space of writing with an exhibition in which the space containing the project was injected with poetic questions, accusations, and experiences. CHR invented, CHR intervened into the space by painting um, a dividing gray horizon-like line throughout the gallery, placing uh, an anti-slip anti tape in front of a wall text, declaring the visitor's book a work of art, and compiling a reader with relevant text some images from the project. And um, this is a part of the public program of Xenoclosia, the exhibition, which we titled Speed Actions, um, as you would do, uh, what is a dating game? Speed dating, yes. So it was borrowed from that. We invited specific people to, 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 to come together, um, and they had a set of questions sometimes or things that they could discuss for five minutes um, and then we will ring um, a bell. Um, in fact, we turned on on high volume one of the videos in the space which was 
uh, Tracy Rose uh, uh, video. Um, the sound was uh, recorded on New Year's Eve, so it's a sound of uh, uh, fireworks. And and here one of one of the 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 prompts uh, was, "Whom do you believe, your eyes or my words?" And this is uh, the moment where the fireworks. Um, disrupted the conversation. Uh, and here, also one of the prompts, knowledge is a position, not a collection. And this was the, the visitor's book. Um, fast forward. <laughs> fast forward to a moment that, um, you know, ca that kind of came as a surprise to, to me a very beautiful surprise, of course, when I started to teach at the Vet School of Art in 2011, I was found myself in front of the students and I thought, it is a, I do not see a revolution coming out of these people. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and as a result, in fact, me and, and Donna, who were teaching collaboratively in uh, uh, Donna Kukama was part of CHR as well, uh, and we applied for the job at the Vet School of Arts together as a, as a team. Uh, and so we started to teach together. Um, so our first project that we did with the students was titled uh, 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 the, Changing, the Changing Culture of Protest. Um, and so basically we kind of were teaching them various ways of uh, 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 historical ways that people have... Uh, have uh, gone to, to the streets, um, finding what, you know, their grievances were. At first, they were very um, non-significant, like, you know, like traffic in the streets, which kind of spoke to a certain people who had the privilege of driving cars. Um, and, uh, and when you teach at a university of, uh, in South Africa, of course, you uh, uh, you, you, you sit in front of students who pay a lot of money to study, um, uh, which is why these protests, you know, also came to be because um, the first one, which is the roads must fall, and and this particular banner comes from the roads must fall um, hashtag roads must fall, which uh, was uh, advocating. Um, for the statue of uh, Cecil, the British imperialist Cecil John Rhodes, to be taken away from the university grounds, the University of Cape Town. The protest started on the 9th of January, I mean 9th of March, 2015. Here's some images from, from the protest. And on April 9th, so exactly a month after the beginning of the protest, um, the statue was removed. So this is uh, uh, several of um, iconic images that are associated with the fallist. So this movement, the people who are involved in this movement are now known as the fallists, um, resulting from both roads that must fall and fees must fall student protest movements. Among these images, um, of course, the most striking is the removal of the statue of uh, Rhodes. Especially for me, this image, 
because of the, pro uh, the banner that is uh, visible behind uh, the statue, which reads, we are not done yet. Um, and I think this also speaks to, to, to uh, uh, what the students also were calling for, uh, especially with the Fees Must Fall protests, um, calling for a free, quality, decolonial education. And to be not done yet in this moment kind of for me signifies that this process that we often um, speak about of decolonization is not a five-year plan. Of course, it is a, a program of the next 200, you know, even more um, years to come. And it's one that we need to kind of inhabit with all our uh, being and, and body. It's not a five to nine kind of uh, occupation. Um, this is an image taken from uh, the Fees Must Fall in Cape Town outside of the South African Parliament. And I quite like that banner that has that question to the previous generation, uh, 1976, which then uh, calls on uh, that generation also to take notice of this generation. So these uh, kind of uh, historical moments that started to connect were the most, uh, I think, most interesting things that have happened in South Africa in the last few years. Um, and when these experiences also are some that I took with me to, to, to Berlin, thinking about um, the Berlin Biennale, which was titled, We Don't Need Another Hero. I think that was also inspired by this. Um, the, the pink of, of, of the pink elephant in, the, in our working at CHR, we, at one point, we kind of decided that gray was the color of history and then pink is the color of the future, um, which is a fiction that we invented and the fiction that we believe. Um, and so it was interesting to see this image come out after, uh, um, uh, during the, the Fismas Fall protests. Um, and, and I found it online just like this with the quotes from, from Nelson Mandela. And, uh, and for me, it became, the fiction started to become true that indeed um, gray is history um, that we need to dislodge ourselves from and pink is the, is the, is the future. And this inspired also the, the design, uh, um, the dazzle camouflage design uh, of uh, the Berlin Biennale, the 10th Berlin Biennale. And I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Um, working in an educational institution and seeing that you did a project that had such a significant impact outcome in one month is pretty amazing, isn't it? The fall of that statue. Imagine those students, they would have felt like the power that they could have even for a moment. And I think what you've done is really showed uh, an approach to history, a context that you come from that has strong resonance for us here and um, the trauma of our own context and our responsibility to kind of address that and deal with that. Uh, in a continuing way here, which is 
something we're working on. Um, have you had response while you've been here that has kind of brought that connection together between the context of Australia and South Africa? Yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I see it. Uh, um, there's uh, many things that resonate. Uh, um, I mean, there's also many things that, of course, that I do not see, that I wish I could see, but I'm also aware that uh, I'm here for a very brief period of time and I do not know anything. I don't know where I am. Um, spend most of my time being jet-lagged and uh, I'm just, yeah, only arriving. And, uh, and uh, it's, I think it's very premature for me to, to be critical, although I'm itching to be. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I've been sharing in different platforms and, of course, with the hope that, you know, some of, of, of these things can, can, can affect. Um, kind of ways of undoing. I think there's a lot of things to be undone here. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, how do you think it works when you move context? So like when you're in Sao Paulo or when you went to Berlin, so you're situated in that different context, but obviously bringing certain things with you. How, how do you navigate being in those spaces? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's a, there is a, a, an answer to that because, of course, it, 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 it has to do with the context and what I choose to bring with me. Um, and, of course, I come with uh, shelves and shelves of uh, experience and I have to choose the right shelf to go to, to each context. Um, sort of like I don't leave my obsessions at home. Um, but I don't take all of them, of course. So if I were to speak about Sao Paulo, going to Sao Paulo and going to Berlin, it was completely different things. I am more familiar with the, uh, the context of, of, of Germany because I've been there uh, many times and also worked in that context. But in Sao Paulo was quite new for me and also there was a limitation with language and the fact that many Brazilians refuse actually to speak English um, uh, and and also those who wish they could they don't because of uh, the historical backgrounds that they may come from so there were those limitations so it was interesting to work with the um, you know to, to kind of work as if you uh, as if you have xenoglossia, <laughs> um, and uh, and 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 also the context was different because I was invited to join a curatorial team, um, and uh, and I started to work in ways that I I I would normally wouldn't, um, because if you see the way that I worked before and how. Uh, I collaborate and, and kind of do certain kind of creative research. For me, I didn't find that space so much in Sao Paulo, um, but in, uh, in, in Berlin, it's a space that, you know, I could see some um, 
of these processes uh, coming and 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 being implemented or or, or stretched um, so that I can see how they they translate on a on a on a bigger platform. Uh, of course, always in conversation with that with that context. Uh, obviously, research is really important part of what you do. I mean, did it was that always essential to the kind of the way that you approached practice, or has it become more important? Well, you know, um, apartheid happened. I uh, there were there were certain kinds of the the some writers in the 80s, especially the mid 80s, Njabulondebele, Louis Ngozi, and others who were advocating for the redistribution, um, rediscovery of the ordinary, um, and which was a critique in uh, in in uh, in, um, in in literature and and even theatre and art. Um, that people or, or creative people, I mean, Albi Sachs in, in 1989, um, his address, which was uh, in a conference titled Preparing Ourselves for Freedom, um, uh, made a proposition uh, that people, artists or cultural, you know, like creative workers, stop using the struggle as a, um, as a, as a, as a reason why they make art. Um, and I think that is, uh, it kind of caused a moment of silence and, and there was a, a lot of uh, uh, responses um, based on, on, um, on that statement. And I think that is, uh, it's, 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 it's very interesting because the archive or for us to be able to see the things that were taking place during Apartheid, it was only when apartheid ended so that the archive kind of opened. So there's uh, it's almost go it, it's 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 natural that one would want to find out in order to be able to um, yeah, to think about what what could a future, you know, look like. So there's uh, for me there's no other way of working other than um, researching or searching um, but also it's important for me that this research is a is a different kind of, of research is a research that doesn't look straight into into the archive but kind of looks from the corner of the eye um, so that you know certain things become also possible amplified and amplified. Too, yeah. yeah and I think also it's not uh, the way you do it it's not that that is another place that's separate from this place. It's very much all in the temporal, bringing everything into the same space and time and kind of connection with people. Um, do you have a preference from the kind of projects you've done over the last few years? Do you feel more comfortable or more um, excited about a certain way of working or a certain scale or a certain approach to working than another or are you kind of happy to go where projects might that, take Yeah, I think the projects are all related. Um, uh, like, I, I, I think there's a connection. I mean, I know there is a connection uh, from one thing to the next. 
Um, and, and with uh, CHR, we could see this happening, although we had a statement uh, of intent that this is what we wanted to do. Um, after we did the first project, it was clear that, you know, this uh, mission statement, we are not about a mission statement, but it was important for us to have this kind of uh, statement at first in order then to 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 know that it, it this is not working in that way necessarily. Um, so to allow for for responses to to the previous projects to come to come through uh, to the next, in fact, to lead what is to to be next. So I see this connection. Um, there's no disconnection all the way to uh, my last uh, project, which was the 10th Berlin Biennale. And do you think, um, I'll open it up to the audience after this, but that process obviously then requires quite a degree of um, review and um, thinking through what, what each project's done. So a period of kind of analysis of it, not just going from one thing into the other. Is that something that you do kind of collectively, um, jointly, or is it a more you know, personal pro process for you? It is. Uh, um, CHR was not a, a space that was always open. So we only opened for events or when we felt that we are ready to share um, uh, our, our thoughts and processes um, and research. Uh, so we did not have any rhythm in, in, in effect. So sometimes we'll have something every two months or after two months or sometimes twice a month, uh, depending on the things that we were ready to, to share. So it was, uh, of course, important this moment of, uh, of collaboratively thinking together. And it was also always casual. We just hung out together and did other work, going to teach at the university or um, the people I worked with were uh, also practicing artists, Donna Kukama and Kimang Lehulere. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's sparked by something that is happening politically at that moment and we feel the need to respond. Yeah. Um, would anyone like to ask Gabby anything or comment or ask for a bit more information? How are we going? Oh, yes. Hi, Gabby. Oof. Thanks for the talk. Uh, so I had two questions. One's quite straightforward. The second one, maybe not so much. Uh, I'm curious if in your travels, because even yesterday you mentioned the Johannesburg, the early closure of the Johannesburg Biennial. I was curious if you ever spoke to or about not so much the biennial as a whole, but specifically about the closure, why that happened, how he thought it affected history or something. And the second question was more about uh, how you differentiate a historian's responsibility over the historical record and a curator's responsibility. Because there were two striking things that you said. The the first was that it's a fiction that you made up and that you also believe. And the other one was uh, moving the portrait from an unknown to a known 
to a funeral in the, the fragile project. And there's this real flexibility to the way you move in these things, what's correct, what's true, what's empirical, what's meaningful, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I have not spoken to uh, to uh, Okui about the Johannesburg Biennale. But I, I mean, I've spoken to, to, to other people. But I mean, I have not done research in ways that perhaps a historian would do research. But I just listen to stories. Um, and when I speak in, in, in different platforms in the world, someone in the audience is bound to ask me about the Johannesburg Biennale. So I just felt like it was something that really was a, like, like a phantom limb, you know? Um, something that kind of exists in so, so many people's, like so many people were in Johannesburg in 1997. Um, you can think of any artist in their 50s right now, and they were there. So it was quite a moment. Uh, and this moment I encounter, um, you know, on uh, not not only on conferences but also one on one. Somebody would say, "Yeah, I, I was in Joburg," and then I look at how old they might be, and I know that 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 is the reason why they were in Johannesburg at that time. And so, and 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 so for me, it's mostly like sitting, you know, with these stories. I think. If I were to go with a, a questionnaire to to people, the I think the the research would be then different. All the responses, the creative responses would uh, um, would kind of change. So I will never ask Okui about the Johannesburg Biennale. <laughs> um, and your second question. Historians' responsibilities versus his curator's responsibilities. Um, I don't know. I I think this idea of I mean, like I, I'm interested. I am interested in fiction, uh, and I read more fiction than I do kind of curatorial texts. Um, and because I think that this allows for this uh, kind of alternative truths to to emerge, um, and I also identify as an artist, and for me that identity is important. I keep it there in my bio. It doesn't mean that you'll find me in a studio making, I don't know, something that I call art necessarily, but it is a, a way uh, of working curatorially. Um, and, uh, and I insist upon it uh, because it, 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 it one that makes my curatorial practice different from someone who might come from art history or from philosophy, etc. Um, and and so when I go towards certain things, I go towards 
them as if I was an artist, which means that I allow myself to touch certain things that some people might be scared to touch because they think they're not allowed by, I don't know, God of the curatorial practice. Um, but I, I don't have a God. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and I think thinking like this, insisting upon it, um, and being unapologetic about it, I might sometimes feel like I need to give a disclaimer about the way I work, but it's not an apology necessarily. Um, and I think these kinds of research processes would not be possible if I were to abide by certain rules that I did not make. So I'm more interested in, yeah, in kind of stretching um, this space so much almost until it almost pops. I mean, I think when it pops, it's, it's more interesting. I want to see when it pops, which direction it goes to and whom does it hit on the face. And sometimes, most of the time, it is myself. <laughs> and I think when you talked also about um, the color pink and being a more a future-oriented kind of color and maybe texture around you was also about um, your dedication to a space that is speculative, you know, that can be imagined, not necessarily tied to kind of one type of fact or one understanding of facts. Um, anyone else like to ask or comment? How are we going for time, Kate? We're good? Yeah, we're good? I think we're going to hang around for a little bit, so if anyone wanted to have a word, less public word, that's an option probably for Gabby. Well, we've got her. She's only got 24 hours more. Um, please, would you join Not me? Not coming back soon. <laughs> <laughs> you'll forget about the jet lag and you'll be back. Could you? Oh, here we go. Because I saw the Berlin Biennale and I didn't know who the curators were when I saw it. I just had a day there and I went and saw it and I was like just really blown away. And then I found out it was like an all-black curatorial team and I was like, no wonder. It's like actually like my favourite Biennale I've ever seen and just a thank you. Mine too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, everyone. That's good. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Gabby. You are listening to M Pavilion Podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>